my guest on this podcast is Amanda Petrusik, a storied author, a, I would say a travel journalist and author. We've been writing about music together for like 13 ridiculous years or something like that. Yeah. You know, you're somebody that I've always kept in touch with and you showed me a great courtesy and had me come speak to your class at NYU before you were, you know, a full-time professor. Which is great and amazing. I also signed a contract for The New Yorker couple months ago, maybe not even a couple months ago. So I'm doing like a piece a week for them roughly uh, for the website. So between those two things, you know, I sort of have my hands full, but I did, um, I have a sabbatical coming up. <laughs> I feel like such an asshole saying that, like it's such a weird sort of rarefied privileged thing to work in academia and have a sabbatical. But I won a Guggenheim Fellowship this year and it gives you a year off. Um, so I have a sabbatical coming up in the spring and I would very much like to get a new book off the ground, although maybe not about music. I don't know. All the ideas, like all the things I've been working on, sort of developing and, you know, trying to get a proposal together have been not music related. So I'm sure you better than anyone probably understand that fatigue. Yeah, I definitely understand the intellectual fatigue that we go around and around with, but we always come out of it. You know what I mean? It's weird. I think both of us in different ways come from a lot more of a kind of observational relationship with music. And I think yours is one that to me is, has somehow continued to be full of wonder. And mine was always about, there's a sort of an antisocial kind of almost rage about the fact that there's always this advertising dollar and this interest in cool and getting a piece of cool that's been there. And that's historically always been a big issue for, for somebody with my mindset. It's true in a way that we've lost a kind of critical voice addressing that, you know, addressing those paradoxes or those contradictions or that, you know, in some cases hypocrisy is sort of, well, in what ways is it okay to reposition art as, marketing, you know, and, and sort of, I, I, I do worry about that. I mean, as a, you know, for me as a young writer, I remember growing up being very uh, intimidated, uh, you know, by the kind of loudest people in the room who, who were calling that shit out. But I think, I think back on that now, and I think like, I'm so glad those people were there, you know, and I'm glad there was a kind of system of checks and balances at one point, you know, it, even if it wasn't necessarily that like the condemnations were always correct, like at least it was a conversation, like at least people were asking questions about this stuff. And I, I feel like that has sort of fallen away in recent years. And I know there's been a lot of talk about criticism itself being kind of recast as a sort of cheerleading. You know, that's been going on because of the money from the venture capital that's made the internet such a slipstream. So you mentioned you mentioned getting shouted down, right? I have never forgotten when we were compadres back at P Fork. A lot of the other young ladies, women that were writing for the site just kind of ignored all the dorky boy stuff, like how obnoxious we were or whatever. <laughs> but you you would kind of like section it out and go toe to toe with like Brent DiCrescenzo or whoever else that we were on the staff board that we'd be talking. But I remember there's this one time <laughs> that you said, um, I really think Chris uh, might have a heart attack when I read some of the things he writes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I I often don't recognize mm. that there's there's something to my voice that I think is is not something that ended up being common, and I mm. felt like it was, but it, I don't really think it did end up being so. Right. Well, that was. I mean, surely that's like indicative of some generational shift. Like that's a like a that was like a thing, right? I mean, that was a thing that happened. Like there there was a kind of way of talking about music that was very different from the way that it gets talked about now, and and. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel that. I feel like you were sort of the last of a, 
of a kind of critic, you know, and, and it's just, that's just not the voice. I don't know if it's not the voice people want to read anymore or if it's not the voice that's tolerated by the kind of institutions that publish this sort of writing. You know, it's a shift I recognize. I think anyone who's been reading music criticism for a long time or as long as we have certainly sees and recognizes that shift. I think there's a lot more effort from young hip-hop fans right now mm -hmm. to try and get real natural dialogue out because all those the the big up sites and the mixtape sites were so owned and all that stuff was so dirty and greased mm -hmm. um i think so many people got burned by that and got kicked out and they were so pissed that they're starting to develop stronger stuff and they're looking at like nas and all these other people and and jeff weiss and they're like you know this is a model the hip-hop mixtape you know cosign shit is not a real model it's just money and privilege and, and power and people they're only rewarding the people who say what they want to hear and it was so egregious that i think it's made it compelling for those kids to feel a sense of opposition the same way we did mm -hmm. to you know spin blender rolling stone you know etc when we were doing zines and when we started you know online stuff like pitchfork and all the sites nobody can remember <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I hear from, I hear from people all the time that are like, I just, I can't fucking deal anymore. I'm so burned out. So-and-so knows everything I've ever done. You know, I can't work here. And I'm just like, you know, you scream and yell about it ahead of time. And mm. people are just like, that guy's like a bitter old crank. And then, you know, onesie twosies, half a dozen mm -hmm. start contacting you and they're like, it was exactly like what you said. And I'm, I fucking am so angry and blah, blah, blah. And I hate music and I'm never going to have anything to do with music again. And that is the ultimate problem. This place sucks! 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 First record that you ever thought was cool that you bought? Oh, man. The first CD I bought with my own money was Pearl Hymns 10, which is not a cool answer to that question, but that is an honest answer. This song is about... Uh... People who don't have taste, but they uh, like us anyway. I didn't. I don't. I, I didn't ask the first one. I just said what the first one you bought. You fucking laser sighted in on this, and you were like, "If I buy this, I have acquired cool." Oh, that was the fucking clash, man. For me, that was the clash for sure. Uh, Combat rock, which is not the coolest clash record, but it was for me. I mean, that was the one where I was like, "This is." There's like, one one less cool. So you're. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. That's true. Um, yeah, that was it. That was the one where I was like, this, like what these guys are doing is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Like if I own this and I like this, like that by extension makes me cool. Like it was, yeah, that was a revelation for me. Did you get like, did you get bought in on the Clash off that? Like did you go full on, like were you wearing army jackets with orange stars? Or I mean, I didn't take it quite that far, but the Clash are probably my favorite band. I mean, Really? Day. Yeah, it's kind of a weird little known fact about me, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, if, yeah, I tried to dress like those guys. I couldn't do it. I wasn't, I just, it wasn't cool enough. I didn't have access to, like, the cool shit. Well, you're also very tall and blonde, so. It's true. It's true. I do not look like a member of the Clash. You know what I loved about the Clash? The Clash seemed to lend Britishness to other countries. They seemed, they, they seemed to, like, tell the story of what it felt like and, and even, you know, wore the dress of what it you know looked like at that time absolutely it's funny because like Susie sue famously fucking hates them yeah <laughs> she's ripped them every chance she gets for being a fucking tourism bill for punk you know mm -hmm. i mean that's fair you know there are things that are probably ind indefensible about the clash but i feel like they're a band that i love 
unconditionally and stupidly. You know, I'm sure you have bands like that too, that you're just, your kind of critical faculties can't be applied. Like the, the love was too pure. You came, you came by it too, honestly, too young. And like, it's just, it's there, right? Like, Oh yeah, no. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting there's anything in any way suspect or, or that is impunable about the clash. I think they're fucking great. My only joke about them was that they were the British Bruce Springsteen. But I, I think that, <laughs> I think that they, I think they needed a uh, Bruce Springsteen at that time because everybody else was just so fucking self-absorbed, you know, Susie Sue included. I mean, an amazing thing about the Clash discography, and I've thought about this a lot, is like they didn't really sing songs about themselves, which sounds like such a dumb thing to say, right? But there's like not a lot of, I mean, there's a few, but there's like very, very, very uh, infrequent love songs, you know, in their discography. There's not really... Which is not to say I think like all bands should be about fucking social justice or whatever, but it's, yeah, I mean, the, there is a sort of narcissism and solipsism that I feel like is absent from their music that is... That's fu- it's funny, too, because when he's in the 101ers, like, all those songs were completely, you know, Crayola fucking childish, yeah. you know, little <laughs> love songs, totally. pub rock stuff, you know. I found the keys, keys, but the keys to your heart, heart, yes, I got them on my chain, chain. Yeah, I mean, I think The Clash had a, a mission that sort of extended outside of itself that, that I think is really beautiful. Like, I still sort of listen to those songs, and I'm struck by that. What you're, what you're recognizing is striking about the kind of solidarity, the, the, the completeness of their kind of literary element. In the same way, I have the, the same undying, you know, pied affection for the, the first body of work, A Wire, because yeah, it, was the sure. inver- it was the total inverse of that. It was absolute abstraction um matthew perpetua had kind of like we we had kind of locked horns on that a little bit because he sort of has a bug up his ass i think a little bit about how wire get too much credit you know and <laughs> I, he has every he has every right to say that mm-hmm. um, you, th- it's great i think if you're if you really love music in that way you get into a band and their entire discography and their history and the whole shape of that thing yeah oh yeah a lot of people never do that ever in their lives ever Oh, God. You know, probably, what do you think? Like 80, 90% of people in the world, they would never have thought, oh, I got to go buy all their albums. It's just, I like that song. Yeah, that's true. And that is so different. It's, a, it's, it's such a disease that we're like, I have to hear the fucking seven inch that they did, you know, when they were another band. I have to get David Bowie's The Laughing Gnome. Yeah. Because I have to understand everything about them. And Oh, my God. That's of, true. There's a lot of cut the craps out there. Feeling that way as a kid about uh, REM, like another weird band that I, I like, felt sort of some kind of like very intense sense of obligation to buy every new REM record as it came out. Like my whole life, I mean, I have I own every REM record out of some weird sense of loyalty to that band, or some sense of sort of like this is a complete picture, and I need I need like every puzzle piece to make the basket of kittens appear or whatever. Like it just. 
Yeah, I don't, I, you're right. I don't think people function that way anymore. I think we are outliers. The podcast I did with Matthew Perpetua and uh, my one of my college friends about REM, the final point that I made in this two-parter was that REM doesn't get any credit for the fact that they spent 10 years making it okay to sound like everything we've listened to since in yeah. mainstream rock. <laughs> That's totally true. I do feel like I'm just... And REM has sort of like disappeared from the cultural conversation, right? Like people don't, people don't. That's why we did it. Evoke them ever, which is insane. Although now I'm going to live in constant terror that that's going to be like the next thing. A bunch of bands that sound like, you know, REM circa like '89. Well, the reason they can't is because no Peter Buck's a fucking really good guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. It's true. No one will. No one will quite get there. But I'm worried people are going to try. It sounds so easy, like because it, it's so twangy and like they're four four or whatever. Mm-hmm. If if anybody could have done what REM did, they would have done it. That's true. Yeah. No, you're totally right. God, what a band. Green is their best album. That's what we decided on the podcast. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. I, or at least I wouldn't argue with it. Yeah, I mean, that's an incredible record. Although I am sort of personally somewhat partial to Out of Time, which I, again, I feel like it's the corny choice. Now I've brought it's up a, Combat Rock and Out of Time. <laughs> well, we did, we did, I, I, I bashed everyone over the head that that's their worst album. But we did. <laughs> You're not I did, wrong, I did, man. You're not wrong. The joke I made was that that was their major label, Fables. Yeah. It was this weird, hollow, fucked up, strange, reactionary record. And then everything after that was just like spot checking how bad they were. Yeah, fair enough. Automatic <laughs> was probably their last great record. Although they're a monster. I could listen to Monster. Part of this whole conversation is where you're at when you come to those bands, you know? Yeah, like, of course. I go, I, go, I go meet a Cure fan who's like 50, and they're like, dude. Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me is bullshit. What are you talking about, man? They haven't made a good record <laughs> since pornography. God, I can't believe you don't like Out of Time. I did love Losing My, Re- My Religion at the time. I burned out on it, though, but... I think I was just like, I want everything to go crazy. And then Nirvana happened. And it was just like, I was so off in that kind of like fuzz, you know, Mercury Rev. I was going all the way into that stuff. Yeah. That there was a weird, there's a weird thing about Out of Time where it's totally got continuity with REM's discography. But what I had loved about REM, you know, like Driver 8 and, mm-hmm. and all those like droney gardening at night songs. Mm-hmm out of time they really tried to shift away from that and yeah. even the mandolin thing and all those you know changes so yeah it was again it's where you're at so i still associate shoegaze with you whenever i think about that stuff i think about the things you wrote about it i mean early on and you know pitchfork too bad they're all gone <laughs> <laughs> Just to live on in my memory, Chris. <laughs> uh, I mean, at this point, I'm kind of like a like a kickboy face, just kind of you know gargoyle on the side of the building, and I'm happy to be that because I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, there were a few different periods and points. There were some opportunities, um, but they didn't break my way because of where I was at in life, and you know, trust and and um, mm-hmm. other issues with other people. I was always two years off of everything. I left New York right when Geiger got involved with Pitchfork. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, but this is sort of my point about your writing is that you, your, your career has not been based on opportunism of that kind. You're not where you are because of who you were next to, I guess is my point. Right. 
the thing that fascinates me is that you have really managed to achieve a really solid vertical trajectory as a writer. You, you know, music has been sort of a, a thing that's inspired you to do that. But the writing mm-hmm. and the story, the storytelling and the reportage has really kind of, I think it's, it's just gotten you under your wings and kind of taken you up. What was the what was the impetus for the seventy eight thing? Was that meeting somebody like Christopher King, or was it like reading about John Fahey or, or Charlie Patton? Or I was maybe writing a story. It was like a front of book thing for Spin magazine about the commercial resurgence of vinyl records, which of course is now like a story that's been written a million times. It had probably been <laughs> written a million times then, right? Like it was probably already embarrassing that I was writing the story then. Uh, but I remember in the in the course of report, I think like Metallica or maybe Nine Inch Nails had just reissued their whole back catalogs on like 180 gram vinyl. And I was reporting the story out and had a beer with this dude named Mike Lupica, who was then a DJ at WFMU and the director of the record fair. And, and you know, we were talking for a while kind of about, you know, record collecting in general. And, and the idea of collecting had sort of always interested me. I was always really curious about it. It was this sort of obsessive act and, and uh, this kind of, you know, maniacal sort of fervent pursuit of anything, you know, interested me. And especially these quest stories where it was really unclear as to whether, like, the thing that the person wanted was even ever actually attainable to them. Like, did this thing that you're sort of dedicating your life to finding, you know, doesn't even exist, could you ever get it? Uh, you know, does it matter? Sort of all, all those kind of big, very human questions. And, and I, we, we were sort of chatting about that stuff, and I remember him saying, like, yeah, some of these record collectors are really interesting, but if you really want to talk to someone who's just sort of, like, fallen, uh, like, kind of straight down a black hole, you should find a 78 collector. And, of course, like, the writerly part of my brain was like, all right, well, of course, like, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And he ended up introducing me to a guy named John Hennigan. And this, again, was all sort of in kind of, you know, tangentially related to the reporting of the spin story, but none of it made it into that. Uh, and I met this collector named John Hennigan who lives here in the East Village. And I was sort of fascinated. I mean, you and I were talking about stakes before, but I was, like, immediately fascinated and intrigued by this idea that, there weren't any masters for these recordings and the kind of physical objects that had been pressed and sold and distributed in very strange ways sometimes uh, or in very limited ways were the only kind of material, um, you know, record that these songs had been made at all, that these artists had existed and had careers and, and committed this stuff to shellac. So it just seemed like this, you know, kind of classic treasure hunt of, you know, looking for these things uh, that really meant something. You know, they meant something to our understanding of early American music. They meant something to our understanding of American history. They meant something to the canon. You know, were they absent or were they not found or were they not hunted down by collectors? It would sort of change everything, you know, when we think of the kind of earliest instances of recorded sound, how we tell those histories. So for me, that immediately, I was like, well, fuck. You know, like, that's a big story. That's a big, important story. And, And the fact that it was being mediated by these guys who were sort of weird and like in weird in a way that I related to uh, immediately, you know, music was so important to them and they were kind of marginalized and they felt like a little bit out of step with, you know, with their peers and they were kind of uncomfortable with aspects of modernity. Like all of that I kind of got immediately. Like they felt, even though being a sort of youngish white woman, I was kind of not really of their kind, I felt like, oh, these are maybe sort of my people, you know, and that terrified me a little bit, but also (laughs) excited me, you know, I don't know, I was like these huge nerds, I mean, you and I were talking about the fact that, like, there aren't any kind of cranky nerds anymore, but these guys are the crankiest and the nerdiest, you know, and I, I loved that about them, I continue to love that about them. They take this stuff super seriously, they don't fuck around with it, like, if you get a serial number wrong... 
you know, they'll get mad and they'll be like, fuck you, you idiot. Like you got that serial number wrong. And, you know, and there was part of me that found that silly and frustrating and, and frightening. At times. But there was another part of me that was like, fuck yeah, like this stuff is important and we should take it seriously. And, and I responded to that too. So you talk, I mean, you talk about, you know, the endless rehash of the resurgence of vinyl. Well, of course the, the, the shadow piece of that is the death of the record store. So, you know, obviously <laughs> so, true. so many of those guys, you know, and, and in Boston with the college crowd, we had so many fucking legendary record stores, mystery train yeah. in your ear, nuggets, you know, all this stuff. Second yeah. coming. I went to all of them when I was a kid. That's where those guys worked. And I mean, you yeah. can, I don't know if you, I don't know if you really call it work. They moved from their apartment to the store. That's about all that happened. <laughs> And I mean, yeah, you would go in there and it was like, you know, I, I did a video about this or it's now a podcast, whatever, an episode called Your Mother Should Know, which was about kind of, you know, meeting these people. I mean, Christ, Pete Prescott from Peter Prescott from Mission to Burma, the drummer from Mission to Burma mm -hmm. worked it for, for a long ass time. Um, and he was one of the guys and, um, you know, you'd have two different kinds of people. You'd have like crazy ass record collector guys like, like Monument and Jeff, the guy from The Liars. Um, mm -hmm. you'd have people who were mental and they would know, like, you know, I don't know, you, like you said, the serial number, they freak out about the serial number. It's like, what aspect of this is really driving you? Is it the composite obscurity of the object? Like when mm -hmm. you put the neat, when you put the needle down on this, like salt records, 45, that costs, I don't know, $90,000 or something like, is it the song or is it the entire historical matrix of mm -hmm. obscurity. And I, I, in the nineties, man, you know, like it was, there was so much of that shit. I love when people use the word crate digging, like nobody's dug through a crate in fucking 20 years. Shut up. <laughs> All right. Last thing. What's your favorite genre? Well, this is an annoying answer, but I'm going to say the country blues. Blues what? music. What happened to you? Play it on really? an acoustic guitar. I'm going to say between like 1925 and 1935. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit. Like you got answer. totally hooked on the, the uh, folk music collection of America or whatever it's called. What's yeah, it called? The Anthology of American Folk Music. The Anthology of... Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. You, I know. I'm you, sorry. That's an annoying answer, but I am going to stick with it. <laughs> Are you like like the the crazy like um, Encyclopedia Britannica people who think like the 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 edition after 1917 or whatever is invalid? Do you have like all the different different iterations of the encyclopedia the, the uh, American folk encyclopedia or whatever? Oh well, yeah, yeah. I mean, sure, a little bit. I uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> among people who uh, who listen to this kind of stuff, there's definitely like a you know, outspoken sort of derision of like pre-war music, but, but then also, or sorry, post-war music, uh, excuse me, post-war music, um, but also all this kind of constant revisionism about that stuff. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, the anthology of American folk music sort of exists as it existed in 1959, drawing from... Oh, but I thought it's been, I thought it was like nuggets and there were like controversial editions. I mean, there are, like there are labels that have put out like the, you know, the next volume or like a sort of updated version or like here's a, you know, a new disc. Um, and I feel like those things are sort of, you know, whatever. They're received and not taken very seriously. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'm saying. So you were like a total purist for the original, like... Oh yeah, for that shit, for sure. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Come here, ladies and gentlemen, listen to my song. Sing it to you right, but you might think it's wrong. May make you mad, but I mean no harm. It's just about the rental's on Penny's Farm. It's a hard times in the country out on Penny's Farm. You move out on Penny's Farm, plant a little crop of bagger and a little crop of corn. Come around to see you gonna flit and plot till you get yourself a mortgage on everything you got. It's a hard times in the country out on Penny's Farm. 
your soul focused on that particular period and type of music, but then Nick Drake. Yeah, I mean, that's also, you know, I, I'm also a folk music fan, and, uh, you know, in, in that particular moment of, of British folk. I mean, and, and Nick Drake in particular, actually, sort of, with, there's a lot of stuff that kind of, you know, things that are considered analogs of that stuff that I kind of have no truck with. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Pink, Pink Moon, you know, maybe my favorite album of all time. Um, it's literally perfect, it is. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's 28 minutes long, so and it's, you know, a guy and a guitar, so there's he eliminated a lot of uh potential sort of things, you know, that that could have ruined it, but it I I believe it to be a kind of a, a perfect document, a really really beautiful and perfect record from start to finish. So when I when I heard you were writing the book, I had sent you that Tamworth and Arden demo where you can hear the truck. <sighs> you can hear the guy start the the fucking cube truck, the yeah. the lorry. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a fucking sucker for that shit. I mean, that I will sob, you know. Yeah. Did you get any crazy, like, archival information or anything while you were researching that? I mean, not really. Um, it's been a while. God, I wrote that book in, like, 2008, which is crazy. Maybe 2007. Maybe it came out in 2008. I don't even remember. For me, what was interesting was sort of the, the kind of trajectory that record took after he died. You know, so for me, that was sort of where I focused my reporting and a lot of my research. And, you know, and a lot of that had to do with this question that sort of circles back to what we were talking about earlier of, like, you know, when they used Pink Moon in that Volkswagen commercial. And I ended up spending a lot of time with the copywriter, a guy named Shane Hutton, who was respons singularly responsible for putting that song in that commercial in that moment and sort of changing, you know, changing everything in a way. He got a lot of shit for it. I mean, and I wonder, it seems like a sort of watershed moment and that, you know, had he done that now, I don't think anyone would have cared or anyone would have even sort of thought to be indignant or angry about it. But, I mean, he was fielding death threats for years. Death threats? Uh, for his part in that. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. People were pissed. I mean, this was, I guess, 2001, if I'm remembering correctly, 2000 or 2001. And, you know, Nick Drake, up until that point, was this sort of obscure, you know, kind of unknown quantity. And, and you know, people sort of passed his name around like a secret. You know what I mean? It was a thing that you were let in on, and it was a gift. And, and yeah. you know, suddenly it was on TV selling cars, and I think people felt betrayed and you know angry and pissed off and that it was a sort of misuse of this really beautiful sort of precious thing and yeah i mean again to sort of circle back to what we were talking about i don't i don't think people would feel that way now i think people would be stoked and it would be fine um but that was i think the sort of last gasp of that kind of indignation right i don't know it's strange because i as precious as i was about all the music i liked um i think the age how how you know the the historical solidity of that record it, it it was old and gone and he was dead um yeah and there was something there was something about the way that that was filmed it actually i accepted it i thought it was really beautiful and and obviously obviously volkswagen you know is historically the most preeminent advertiser yeah uh, you know apple apple and volkswagen are the definition of modern, powerful advertising. Advertising as a craft yeah. where they make advertising that is art. Absolutely. I thought that the moment and the universal moment that was encapsulated in that commercial was totally fucking appropriate. It's like using, it's like using faces in Rushmore. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's a very beautiful commercial. I mean, you know, and I thought about this a lot. It's, uh, you know, that, funnily enough, was directed by uh, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, who 
made Little Miss Sunshine and went on to make Ruby Sparks, a bunch of other movies. Artists. I mean, they were artists and they're filmmakers and they're serious people. And, you know, I think that the commercial has no dialogue in it. It's, it's really lovely and I think also captures some sort of sense of, you know, something that I actually, an idea, this sort of idea of alienation or, or this idea of kind of believing in your own exceptionality that I, I actually think would not be used in an advertising campaign now. I don't think it would work now, but it worked then. And it's, it's a beautiful commercial. I mean, it really is. It's very lovely. I wonder if that doesn't, I mean, this is a great way for us to wind down. Doesn't that presage in a way, that moment that those, you know, advertised people, the ad campaign for that, that product, that car was, we don't give mm -hmm. a shit about what show is going on that, you know, your other friends are all texting each other to go see. We're actually friends and we're going to yeah. leave and we're going to leave here and we're going to go continue to be friends and they're going to go yeah. to this fucking show, which is really just a fucking cesspool of alienation and pro forma, you know, role playing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh, God, I mean, this is so much more depressing. I thought we were going to end on a high note. Sorry. I'm sorry. Um, it's true though. I mean, that's true. And I think that used to be a thing. People, I, it, fuck. Well, all right. Say something cheerful and optimistic. That's your that's your thing, right? I made my name on being cheerful and optimistic. That's what I associate with you. Of the songs on there, I think Pink Moon might be the happiest song on that record. Place to be? Yeah. That is a fucking <laughs> neckbreaker, man. Yeah, well, I mean they're all they're they're all that way, I think from there. I think you're absolutely right. It is. It well, it's the most ambiguous in a way. It's also there's something kind of vaguely hopeful in it. In your 33 and 3rd book about it. Mm -hmm. How did you approach Parasite? That's a really good question and I'm sort of embarrassed to say I don't remember. I don't remember writing a lot about that song. I mean, maybe for obvious reasons. The second side of Pink Moon is really weird. Oh, well, Cuz yeah. the first side is like Pink Moon, Place to Be, Witch Will, Things Behind the Sun, these are all kind of yeah. like normative. They have folky turns and throws. And Absolutely. They're not Second time gets weird as fuck. No Parasite Ride, Harvest Breed from the Morning. It's a really intense run of songs. Well, what does Parasite mean to you? I'm curious why you asked about that one. Do, do you know what he was taking? Was he taking Feet of Arbitol? I mean, supposedly, allegedly. So when I, when the, the Parasite jumps out at me, so dramatically because I think of it as in the same way as like Joy Division's um, The Eternal or you know like Decades Th these absolutely you know staring down the cliff things that are that are not recognized as they're composed by the artist who is really at the end of their rope and if you look at the rest of Pink Mood there's sort of nothing else on Pink Mood that I look at and I'm like Ooh, you know, in, 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 in right. hindsight. Yeah, no, that's the one. You're right. That's the one. It's not, I mean, yeah. I don't even, it's not like a, an affecting song per se, unless you're invested in sort of the, the mythos of Nick Drake. Yeah. And, and Joy Division has those songs too, where it's, you listen to it and you're just like, I almost feel bad listening to this. This is horrible. And he just yeah, doesn't have. It's true. It's different now. I mean, it, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because he doesn't have those on, you know, when he was trying. It's also the thing about Pink Moon, obviously, is Pink Moon is the one where he's already been through Brighter Lighter and he's been through Five Leaves Left and he's tried yeah. to be, you know, a managed, successful, you know, yeah. financed, produced musician. And Pink Moon is where he's just like, I'm going in the back and this is all I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, I mean, that's the beauty of it, obviously. For people like us, at least. <laughs> 
Strong.